You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as James and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Jans and Jambres. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose is in life. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This is God's word. All right. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, uh, yeah, Revelation. I haven't seen the uh, Killers of the Flower Moon yet. I don't know if any of you have, uh, the new Martin Scorsese film. But my daughter came home and told me all about it. That's what happens when I go out of town. Uh, kid goes to R-rated movies. Um, but, but I'd pre-approved it because uh, it was a historical story, and the brutality was pointing to some important questions that needed to be asked. And one of the questions that's asked in that movie is, do you believe in the Bible? And the answer uh, is exposed in that film in graphic detail, uh, how the character actually uh, relates to the Bible. For the Bible says, the love of money is at the root of all sorts of evil. Um, And Paul says to Timothy, uh, that's what Paul says to Timothy. And then in the Proverbs, Proverbs 13.10, it said, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of the fool will suffer harm. And Scorsese is trying to invite moviegoers to consider whether or not we believe the Bible as he tells that story. Now, for this short series, we're going to look at six premises or themes of the Christian faith, and we assume um, that, you know, the, the Christians in the room have a lot to remember and learn about these things, too. This isn't just Uh, For somebody who isn't a believer, it's really for both. So to kick off the evening, we're looking at what most scholars would say that the premise number one, the the core premise of the Christian faith is, and that is what we call revelation. Put simply, that God shows people who he is, what people need to know, and preserves a record of it um, that we tend to call the Bible. Now, the word Bible simply means a book collection. It was once a common word for book collections. So Christians don't so much believe in Bibles. Uh, those are just, that's just a fact. Book collections exist. But we reveal, we believe that God reveals himself so well that we can understand it and collect it in a Bible. So um, think about it. If that's not the case, all other premises break down very easily. Like think about the statement, Jesus is God. What does that mean if we do not know who God is? Nothing. 
I'm going to use one Bible verse to illustrate this, and that's what we read. It's actually what, uh, a chapter of the Bible. And I, and I understand, if you're not so sure about the Bible, um, this may not be helpful. But I want to ask you to consider the possibility that God reveals himself through these words. And this is where we begin. Um, I am going to go backwards through what Vi just read to you um, and actually uh, work in the opposite direction. So I'm going I'm to read this piece again. Um, Sorry to you all in the back, I changed translations, uh, as you may have discovered. But Paul, uh, Paul wrote this at the end to Timothy. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Uh, Paul is an ancient church leader. Many of us kind of assume this. And there's a young leader, a young pastor he's discipling, and his name is Timothy. And this uh, piece of a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy has become the most quoted uh, Bible verse uh, that teaches us about what Scripture is. It's like a Scripture that talks about Scripture. Um, Reading it here, we're reading it in a translation that reads somewhat um, similar to a newspaper. Um, this reads harder than a blog, by the way. Um, it reads about the same as a newspaper. The, the translation you saw up on the screen uh, reads more like a book in our modern day. But when we hear in this version of the scriptures, Paul say that God inspires the scripture, you might, you might hear something like the word motivates inspire like what do you what do you think of when you hear the word inspire like you you wake up in the morning and you look out into the beautiful october sky and you see the mountains and you go you know i'd love to go bird watching i'm inspired i'm going to go up mount lemon see if i can see me a blue jay but that's that's not enough to get under the concept of what's here um, when Paul said, uh, as we kind of saw actually in the other translation that popped up, the scriptures were God-breathed. That's a little more of the wording that Paul used. But we, even when we hear that, um, we think God-breathed, like that, that's a little bit abstract. Like what, what does that mean? That like God like, whew, like put, put wind into the person who said it? Like what, what does that mean exactly? Because we don't connect that in Greek, the word for spirit and the word for breath were very similar. And they would have heard him saying something like God infused his spirit into the words that were captured for us. Um, there's this deeper sense that the spirit of God carried a person to write something that was good and true. And that, that carrying by the spirit is what makes it useful and dependable to look to for moral clarity, able to prepare people to lead a meaningful and productive life. Now, um, I assume most of you know the books of the Bible did not like somehow spiritually manifest themselves, right? Um, like, the, like, well, I don't know, let's take Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't just like sit down and this like paper floated down to him and he was like, whoa, and he just says, hand began to move, and then the, the, the paper floated up from the table, and it, you know, moved and descended into the temple where it was, like, gloriously received into the Bible, right? We, we know that's not really how it worked. Um, we know that the books were collected together by people. They were collected together by people. A couple years ago, I wanted to read... Um, well, I decided to be a, a Chicago Cubs fan, like seriously, and many of you have caught this um, vibe for me as I talk about it too much, but I'm going to talk about it some more. Uh, but to, to, to really become the Chicago Cubs fan that I wanted to be, I realized I needed to read like the quintessential material on the Chicago Cubs. I needed to brush up on their origin story. I needed to know key places like Wrigley Field. I needed to know about the events that happened that were, you know, the huge events like I needed to know that Babe Ruth pointed to the seats and called a shot from Wrigley Field, right? I needed to know about the 2016 World Series. Who were the players? How did they do it? How was it that they won the World Series after all these years? So I did my research, and there are tons of books 
uh, about the Cubs, probably more than any other team because they're the best known team in the world because they're the greatest. Um, and some of them were done by trusted historians or reporters from the area, experts or actual players, and others are just done by fans and, and people that are maybe not that trustworthy. So I did my research and I looked at which books got the best reviews and told the best version of the story, and I read like four or five last year, books on the Chicago Cubs. Um, I created something of a, of a collection. You could call it like a, a personal canon a collection that I decided was trustworthy and important. And that word canon means things that measure up, things that, that measure up to a certain standard. I set a standard that I wanted to read the stuff that was right and good and from trustworthy sources because I couldn't read a 1,000 books, and I chose the very best books. Um, that's what people did with the Bible, and that can be kind of a, a struggle we have, that people used a process of deciding what's up to the standard to choose the books that are in the Bible. Um, there are canons of all sorts of types of texts, religious texts, academic texts on various subjects, the history of a nation or a family. You could say those are, those are canonized books. Um, this isn't just a, a concept behind the Bible. It's a concept that we apply to all good collections of literature. But we also know that people can make mistakes. I might like a book about the Cubs that claims that Wrigley Field is the greatest ballpark in Major League Baseball because I once saw my first Major League Grand Slam at Wrigley Field, and it is forever imprinted on my mind, and I had a best friend growing up that loved the Cubs. I am biased toward Wrigley Field. I know, I know. It's hard to believe. But it's important when having discussions about things like that, that you have more people involved. And how much more important would it be when it comes to God's revelation, where so much more is at stake, uh, that it not just be up to some person to decide for themselves what is the word of God, right? So, but I'm getting, I'm getting a bit ahead. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Um, Christians believe that God chose to reveal himself. That's premise number one. Christians believe God chose to reveal himself so we would know who our creator is and how we should live. If that's, if that's hard for you to believe, just consider this. Um, wouldn't you prefer that it were that way? If there is a God behind all of this, all, all that we experience uh, behind our lives, the fact that we woke up this morning, behind the creation, everything that we saw outside, behind who we are and everything we have to offer, wouldn't it be right for that God to, to, to some degree explain himself? Even more than that, um, some of us have been parents. Think about it. You don't want to just like produce children and just, you know, like birth them and just like boop out into the world. Generally, you discover something as you go along. You want to know the kid to some degree. And you actually want them to look at you and take some cues from who you are and listen to your wisdom and perspective. And sometimes they do not do that. And you find yourself uh, bothered by, by this and struggling with this. Um, maybe you don't have kids. Isn't that core to any relationship, just being known and factored in and listened to? Um, any friendship, any working relationship? You, you want to be a... You want to be seen, you want to be known, you want to be understood. Wouldn't that be true of our ultimate relationship um, to the one who created us? When Christians believe in revelation, it isn't just because we insist on having a religious text that you have to follow. It's because this is a philosophical necessity and a relational necessity to have something like this. It's a relational necessity that we know the one who created us. And it's a philosophical necessity. The core, um, some of you have studied this stuff, so you know, here, here's your big word for the day if you haven't. Epistemology. The core of a good philosophy is epistemology, an understanding of how we even know anything. Epistemology, the study of knowing. What is knowing? Where does knowing come from? How do we know what we know? How do we know that we know? These are the big questions. The strongest philosophy is built off of a theory of knowledge that can hold up the rest of the system. So if the system is built on something that doesn't 
you know, support it, it's a, it's a weak philosophical system. If the system is built on something that does support it to where you can make assertions later on in the system, then it's a good premise. Um, at the core of a lot of philosophies, whether or not you realize that you do have one, philosophy is just a word for, for wisdom, how you decide what's wise. Um, one of the core premises under many of our conclusions is a skepticism that anything can be known. Um, think about it, a, a philosophy that begins with the assumption that we cannot know anything with certainty. And, that, and a lot of the philosophies of our day begin with that assumption. We can't know anything with certainty. Um, that philosophy contradicts itself over and over again. In fact, the very statement I just said, you can't know anything with certainty, is a contradiction of the system because that's a statement of certainty. You see, like, it's saying, I know you can't know. The whole system starts to crumble. So the best a system like that can say is it's possible we may not be able to know everything or anything. But, you know, moving on from that, here's why we live and move and have our being. It becomes a volume of unanchored ponderings. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to go on that philosophical quest. But at the end of the day, people don't end up behaving according to that, actually. We end up living by all kinds of black and white principles that we decide upon ourselves. You might end up deciding discrimination is wrong. You might end up deciding that people need to be themselves. You end up with a black and white statement, even though your premise is wide open. And then people become entirely disjointed because they come up with all of their own premises and they try to live in a society where we have to agree on some things but our own philosophies tell us we cannot. Does that sound kind of like what we experience in our world? So what, what do people need? What do a fragmented people need to unite them? We need a source of knowledge we can actually gather around. Um, for good philosophy, for helpful religion, um, you need a God who reveals things to people or else you need to have an ultimate monarch who controls everything. Which one would you rather have? Christians believe in a God that tells us who he is and what his will is and how to live. Now back to the problem that's also just reasonable. Um, second point, people often deliver the revelation and this can be hard for us. Listen to this part of what we read in Timothy. Um, the, uh, oh, I forgot to show you the picture of the Cubs. Look, there's Wrigley Field when they won the, the championship. Isn't that cool? Let's just take that in for a second while I find my next slide. There we go. Okay. Um, Paul wrote this to Timothy. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true. And you know you can trust who taught you. Now, this is interesting that this portion of the letter, this is the one from which we get the scripture that talks about the, all scripture being God-breathed goes on and on and on about the people involved in delivering it to Timothy. The people. Um, Paul is acknowledging his role in Timothy's life, that Paul knows what he teaches about Jesus. Paul, or Timothy knows about Paul's experiences and everything that he suffered. Paul goes on and on and on about it. And he even acknowledges um, the people who's, who, who have been you know, contributing to Timothy's life all along and that people will misrepresent things and deceive others. He talks all this time about the people who are involved. And that's some of what we struggle with, the people. Okay, so if you were God and you created a world full of people who developed thousands of languages and cultures and ways of celebrating and relating and grieving and recreating, um, and we assume that people would do this because they do, right? You look around, they're doing all these things. Um, how would you decide to reveal yourself to people? How would you do it? 
Well, let's start here. What are we doing right now? I'm talking to you, right? Um, and some of you are liking what I'm saying, and some of you are not enjoying the time, right? Or maybe you kind of aren't so sure. So what are you doing? You are thinking, using words. You're pondering these things. You're going, huh, is this ever going to end? Or like, where is he headed with this? Like, what is this all about? Um, you're using a language, though, just like I'm using when I talk to you. Um, unless maybe you speak another language, and in your mind, you're speaking that one because it's more familiar. That's possible as well. But a language is being used even inside of your mind to process information. The only way we process information is through language, and we preserve and share language in recordings or writings which descended from drawings or images. But pictures can't capture as much as a well-chosen word. A story that gives picture context is even more powerful. Now, what do you think Jimmy Fallon is drawing? What do you think that is? When I first looked at it, I was like, it's a squiggly cigar. And I was like, oh, no, it's headphones, you know? But, but maybe it's supposed to be somebody listening to music. I don't know. I don't know what Jimmy Fallon is drawing when he's, he's playing Pictionary right here. Why is Pictionary a challenging game, right? It's easier to explain something with a shared language than to make an image of it. In fact, an image alone can actually distort meaning if it doesn't come along with words, which is why when you get done with Pictionary, what's the big crescendo? Somebody has guessed the words that describe it correctly, right? Now, God has always used people. Now, in ancient times, you'll notice when you read your Bible, God does more speaking, um, it seems, and appoints men and women to speak what he's spoken to them, to others. That's what you see in ancient times. And he forbids images of himself. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Wonder why. Then as language develops, God delivers commandments and captures the stories that were held in these small communities with written words. Do you ever wonder how important these written words were to the expansion of the communication that God wanted to share with humanity? How important it is to get it into words. Written words can be translated into other languages. They can be compared. Multiple people can look at them and say, you know, maybe it means this, maybe it means this. Um, today, or right, right now, I, I met some friends in Canada last week who are Syrians who are transmitting ancient Hebrew words translated not into English but into Farsi to curious people in countries like Afghanistan. But they need words to do it. And all of that is happening through people, right? People, 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 people. How do you do it without people? You can't. How does God do it? Through people. A common complaint about revelation is the human element, but how else would it be done? Imagine if we all got direct transmissions from God. It just can't, it was, Jesus is God. Cool. I don't know. Would that work? I guess people would also have to be trustworthy. Because what if they told you something God said and it wasn't true? I wish people were trustworthy but we not always are. Everything we know, though, we learn through other people. And so it is with God's revelation. But we also have these ancient and preserved texts that we can look at and compare and contrast so we can test the words of people to what's been said by God in the past. How is it that Paul can even use the concept of evil and imposter? How does he even come up with those words because good and evil are defined in divine revelation. That's why. Because the way that Jesus continued and fulfilled the work of the ancient scripture is preserved for us and exhibited, and you can look at it and read it, and then you can compare what somebody else is saying to what Jesus said and compare that to what was said before Jesus. You can look at all of these things and examine these things. You can examine people by their relationship to the character of God. And that's what happened with Paul and Timothy. Paul was saying to Timothy, look at my life. Compare it to what you were taught by your mother and your grandmother. You can examine people by their relationship to God's character. 
Timothy was raised by godly women elsewhere in uh, 1 Timothy. It talks about his, uh, or actually, I think it's 2 Timothy. He talks about his mother and grandma, Lois and Eunice, who taught him the scriptures as a child. So when he met Paul and observed his work in life, he could compare it and discern it and see the continuity between what he learned about God and what he was seeing in what Paul was saying about Jesus. There's a beautiful relationship that begins to happen between God's revelation and people. It's delivered by people, but the revelation itself discerns the people. This is why people have always looked at writings, as they once did with Paul's, to to see if this lined up with what the other words about God had said. They could check it against other revelations. Now, consider how incredible this is. The first time we get written words from God in the scriptures, and this can almost feel like hard to believe, but God, this is not how it looked, by the way. This is just, you know, somebody made this up. This is not a photograph of Mount Sinai. Um, God spoke to the people audibly. Then Moses went into the presence of God and the people all watched him go into the cloud. And then he comes down with written words. Do you see that at this transition time, God speaks to the people. They watch the person go and get it. They watch the person come back. God is involved with helping them see that he is the one delivering this. I was thinking, you know, the, the, the religion that comes to mind in the States is, you know, when somebody like Joseph Smith finds some tablets alone in the state of New York and he finds a pair of glasses and he puts them on and he can read the tablets, but then when he comes back, he doesn't have the tablets and nobody saw it. They only have what he brought back, you know? There's something different going on here where the people heard God speak and affirm the words that he sent down. They even had a chance to reject it, and they did at first. And God gave it to them again. See, God preserves his revelation, but he actually works through people. Probably the the trouble, I would say, with the Joseph Smith story in Mormonism, there weren't enough people involved. It all came from one. And I I think we know that. Even though we struggle with the human element, what do we want to do? We want to verify it. We want to hear that somebody's dead. We want more people involved. How are we even judging the things that we hear by our own by our own eyes and ears? By the way, we need to include as we uh, think about all this the revelation in the creation itself. It's good to ask about the natural order of things. It's good to read Genesis 1 in light of what we learn about the sedimentary layers of the earth. God made the world too. It's part of the revelation. But the earth is like Pictionary. Without words, it can't tell us everything. You need both. So people often deliver divine revelation. People who were spoken to and told to speak in ancient times, people who wrote words on paper, people who teach it, people who read it, people who interpret it, check it. Um, Every time we read anything, the words are passing through a person. So then the question becomes, if there's a God who created the world and all that's in it, could that God handle the fact that people are involved? Could he preserve his revelation even though people are involved? That's the faith question behind it, and Christians believe he can. Now, God also tells us over and over it's not going to be without people misrepresenting it. The whole story of the people of Israel, you're always going to have people in that nation who, who trust the Lord and who don't, who represent him well and who don't. Then in the New Testament, when the church comes to be, guess what happens within the church? There's people who represent it well and people who don't. The Bible is very crystal clear. And even Paul right here said there were going to be people who twisted it. Um, There were going to be people who attacked you if you believed it. There were going to be imposters. There were going to be evil people with wrong motives. Um, He doesn't have any, he, he assumes it and we should too. But could the God who created all things handle the preserving of his revelation through people? Um, Honestly, compared to creating the solar systems and the concept of consciousness, um, I think if God could handle those, he could preserve what what he's revealing. I think he could handle it. So scripture is God revealing himself, his character, and it's often through people, and it tells us about people, um, and we interact with it as people. 
And then the scripture preserves examples for us. So here's our, uh, here's our next little section. Um, I, I heard Cruz, uh, you said something like, did Andy really mean to pick this scripture or what was he thinking? I assume this part was part of it. So here you go. These teachers oppose the truth just as uh, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They've depraved minds in a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are just as with Janus and Jambres. Who are Janus and Jambres? Or in Spanish, Hannes and Hombres, right? Is that right? Okay, just checking. I just, you know, multiple languages here. Um, if you hunt the Bible for these two, this is the only place you'll find their names. Isn't that interesting? Um, you have to move into historical Jewish books, Jewish rabbinic literature, even the Dead Sea Scrolls, scrolls that were found later at Qumran, to find out who the, what these names are. Isn't that interesting? And these names in all of that literature are associated with two men who are in the Bible, but they're not named. And Paul here is connecting those traditions. He's speaking to people who, who assume those traditions. He's actually using a text outside of the Bible to explain the Bible. But there were two religious leaders in Pharaoh's court back in the day. You may have heard of the times when uh, Israel became enslaved in Egypt. They were there because they had, uh, they had found refuge from famine. And then after 400 years, they, were, uh, they found themselves enslaved under the world's superpower. And there are two religious leaders in Pharaoh's court who actually stood in opposition to Moses when God called his spokesperson to speak to his people and to speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go out of slavery. There were two religious leaders who opposed Moses, and they actually did powerful spiritual things themselves. Um, this is an actual photograph of them right here. Um, these, religious, these religious leaders, they were, we call them the magicians in Pharaoh's court, um, are Janus and Jambres. And why does Paul use this example? Well, the text that follows um, actually begins to talk about people who act religious but end up taking advantage of these vulnerable women. It talks about, and this is like clearly talking about something in Paul and Timothy's day of there, was, there were women in their communities that tended to get um, misled and who were taken advantage of that Paul was talking about. And he's describing those kind of people and he said, they're like Janice and Jambres. Now, what do we learn from this example when we know who Janice and Jambres are? Well, Moses uh, did some supernatural things to confirm that he was speaking on behalf of God. And then these two magicians happened to be able to do them too. They were able to make snakes appear as well, right? They seem to have this spiritual power. They seem to be able to bring some kind of spiritual authority into the room as well. But what do you do with that? What do you do when somebody else has this spiritual authority, the spiritual insight, the spiritual power? What do you, what do you do? Now, in the story with Moses, God ends up exposing them, um, and, and they are actually overcome by one of the weakest um, creatures in the plagues, the gnats, um, and, and he, they're exposed for what they really are, but for some time, they seem just as powerful as Moses. Now, we have this example in God's revelation, this story that can help us discern something between spiritual claims and spiritual actions, even if they look very powerful. The scriptures, this revelation of God, doesn't just give us instructions. Sometimes it gives us insights. It gives us stories. It gives us examples that we can look to and compare and contrast. So I was thinking about it today. I, I mean, I was driving down Speedway. There was a new, there was an A-frame sign out by the street. There was a new occultic bookstore. And I just thought, wow, that's, there was a time in my own lifetime where that sign would not be put on the street. That would have been like a secret store. But now it's like, hey, cool, new occultic bookstore, right? And then I'm at Crave Coffee and uh, somebody brought out the tarot cards and, you know, and kind of reading tarot and, um, Wow, there's a lot of spiritualism going on in our community. There really is. Um, so what do you do when somebody get, gets their tarot cards read and it does seem like they find out what's going to happen next and they believe it, right? What do you do? That might happen. It might happen. If you remember Hannah's story who uh, came to Christ here in this community, she started off with tarot cards. She was exploring all kinds of stuff. What do you do? The tarot reader center here, by the way. 
That's a true story. Um, how do you discern between what's good and true, even between the various churches that seem so different? So of God. Well, this example of Janice and Jambres is actually illuminating because you know what it says? It says the tarot cards may work. You might get spiritual insight. Um, the Mormon church will give you family and a moral code. Nationalism will stir up a crowd more than giving mercy. There are a lot of powerful spiritual forces that will seem to work. But this example teaches us we need to make sure we're aligned with God's mission to set his people free that they might worship him. That's what was happening in the Exodus, and that's what's happening now, is God is setting his people free that they might worship him. And you need to compare people's claims and see if they're about the mission of God. Next, people need revelation. Um, this section started off with this whole list of uh, terrible things going on in the world. The other reason Cruz was spooked and, you know, was like, I'm not bringing any of my friends to this. But it said, uh, you should know this, Timothy. In the last days, there will be difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. Um, thank you for putting that up there, by the way. Um, they will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They're the kind that work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened by the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they're never able to understand the truth. Um, that, by the way, is the preamble to the Janus and Jambres. They take advantage of vulnerable people overcome by guilt instead of setting them free. That's what the Janus and Jambres example illuminates. Um, now, whatever you might think about the last days, and by the way, this is an example that, um, of maybe looking at the natural revelation, like part of the natural revelation of the world is he said that over 2,000 years ago. And so if the last days were then and they're still now, what does that mean for what, when we wonder about the last days because there's a war in the Middle East, right? What does that mean? But what, whatever you may think of the, the last days, we can agree that back then and now, we are very much characterized by these issues, Right? loving pleasure more than God, being controlled by guilt and vices and therefore becoming vulnerable like the women who were mentioned in the passage, proud, loving money, considering nothing sacred, being unloving. Yes, people are this way, right? Um, if I'm honest, I can be this way, right? We can be this way. Paul said to Timothy, you should know this, and he did because he'd been schooled in the revelation of God that, that says, all kinds of things about people and our hearts and our tendencies. Um, and one of the things it tells us about ourselves is that our inner orientation always bends toward ourselves. That's even the Garden of Eden story. What is it that Adam and Eve want? There's, there's God and his presence, and then there's to have the knowledge that God has themselves, right? It talks about our disorders, what does that mean? Out of order. A disorder is when things are out of order, when top-tier loves are out of order, when we love self and money and pleasure um, more than we love other people and more than we love God. And how are we people ever going to make progress? How are we going to make the world a better place or unite or worship our creator again? Um, we're going to need God's help in all kinds of ways, and God's revelation provides um, what we need. On our way back from Vancouver last night, uh, we flew into Seattle, and so it was just beginning to get dark. The sun was going to go down, and we were flying above these dense cotton candy clouds um, with the sun shining, and you could see the mountaintops above them. It was far more beautiful than my picture through the plane window uh, captured it. And then we began to descend into those clouds, and they seemed like they went on for some time, and I began having those thoughts that um, paranoid people have of like the nose of an airplane appearing suddenly out of them and we all die, right? I was just like, and I started thinking to myself, what, can the pilot see more than me? No, I got a window, he's got a window. We're all seeing nothing is what we're seeing. But then it dawned on me, no, that's not right because he's got several things. He has his instruments, he's got 
the like probably a whole digital display that shows him where he is, and he's got people down in a tower talking to him about you know when what his timing is supposed to be and where the other planes are. Um, can you feel a metaphor emerging from this? I sure can. Um, so we're we emerge we're we're in the clouds. I'm thinking about all these things, and then we we duck out from under the clouds and all of a sudden we see the neighborhoods of Seattle and all the greenery and a runway, right? And you can see it all and we joked, there's Brandon Kira's house, you know? And there's like, there's the people we know, like there's the Pike Place Market, you know, we're flying into, into Seattle, even though we didn't see any of that stuff. But, but we thought we could, we could see details. Um, let's run with that visual for a second. So when God reveals himself, he, he reveals himself in several ways. He gives us the upper level things like the sun and the mountaintop stuff, the truths about his character, who he is, um, like he did uh, to Moses when, when, he, when God descended in a cloud on Mount Sinai and Moses went up into that cloud. I'll give you Mount Sinai, fake picture again, uh, just for this. Um, Moses actually heard these words from God and they are like core mountaintop truths where God actually said, this is my name and this is my character. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Can you imagine hearing those words from God and how terrified you'd be and how like simultaneously you'd be loving the mercy and chilled by the justice and just like going, what does that mean? It challenges all of our intuitions. It's more merciful than we'd ever expect. It's more judgmental than we'd ever expect. How do the two coincide with one another? You're hearing these words from God. That's big picture. This is who God is, stuff. And the revelation of God tells us these things. But then life is like a moral fog. And we're going through life and you go, how does this apply to all this stuff? How does this apply in my work? How does this apply when I'm frustrated with my family? How does this apply here? How does this apply here? How does this apply to when I don't feel like doing something today? How in the world does it apply, right? Um, the revelation guides us through the fog. It's like the instrument panel. It's like the other person who can communicate with you and say, hey, look, this is what God says. It's like, it's like that digital display that says, you may not feel like you know what you're going, where you're going, but you're right here. This is who you are. This is, what you're, this is what you're here to do. It can guide us through the fog. And then there's things that get down closer to the ground, and Revelation leaves room for us to look and see and make choices, shaped by the wisdom of God, using our minds and hearts, and prayer and the Holy Spirit. We can look around and we can decide all sorts of stuff like where to live, how to spend our money, who to marry, what to do in, in our retirement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the revelation of God can shape us and prepare us to make those kind of decisions. It really meets us at all the levels that we need. Um, one more word, I was introduced to a, a, a song over the summer uh, called Margaritas at the Mall. And it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a depressing song, I'll, I'll admit. Um, but uh, yeah, by this, this band Purple Mountains. But the, uh, lest we think um, that nobody cares anymore about the word of God, this song signals otherwise. Um, and lest we think it's not important, this song signals otherwise. Because it's a sad song by a man who took his life. Um, he had a difficult life. His parents were divorced. He had a real disdain for his father. Part of his like adult life was just ranting against his own father. Um, he, he had a marriage of his own that fell apart. He dealt with substance abuse to numb the pain of this aching feeling that he was underappreciated, which he would always talk about. Um, but he was, a, he was a talented musician. And for a time, he stabilized because he found um, his family's religion of Judaism but it didn't give him enough hope. And as that started to collapse, he made his final album. Um, and on the song, Margarita's in the Mall, this is what he wrote. Drawn up all my, all my findings, and I warn you that they're candid. 
My everyday, or <laughs> my everyday begins with reminders that I've been stranded on this planet where I've landed beneath this gray as granite sky, a place I wake up blushing like I'm ashamed to be alive. And then listen to these questions. How can a world go on under such a subtle God? How long can a world go on with no new word from God? See the plod of the flawed individual looking for a nod from God, trotting the sod of the visible with no new word from God. We're just drinking margaritas at the mall. That's all this stuff adds up to after all. Magenta, orange, acid green, peacock blue, and burgundy. Drinking margaritas at the mall. You kind of get this sense these like, we're just messing around, getting drunk. That's all there is left to life if God doesn't have anything more to say. Um, his name is David Berman. He discovered God's revelation, but he thought it was over. He thought it was over. And Christians believe it's not over, that Jesus carries it forward, that Jesus exhibited what Moses saw on the mountain by entering in and taking the justice and, the, and granting the mercy of God. And that when he promised he'd be with us always at his ascension into the cloud, which you have to think of Sinai when you think of his ascension. That same spirit that brought the revelation and carried people to right words is actually given to his people. That's what Jesus said. I'm with you always. He's sending his spirit to live with us. Imagine if we lived life out of this. What if we had a revelation that was written, that we could look to, that we could compare things to, but we knew that God, who had been behind the revelation, was actually with us? That it wasn't just old or abstract, but actually still active and alive, present with us as we navigate, because that same spirit that inspired the scriptures was speaking to us and pointing us in the right direction and helping us through the fog. Paul instructed the young man under his care to take the Judaism his mom and grandma taught, they would have called it the Torah, and let it sink in deeper in light of who Jesus was, which is what Paul was teaching, and then go into the world prepared to do good work in light of all that truth. And that's what Christians believe Revelation does. Yes, we believe in the Bible, we read the Bible, but it's far deeper than that. It's a connection to the God behind it all who always intended to share himself with us and to be known. All these ideas are even present here at the table where Christians worship. Um, here at the table is our, our hints back to the creation and our original calling. Have you ever thought about it? When God created the world, he made wheat and he made grapes and we get to come to a table of bread and wine. These are the things that we made as we listen to God's original revelation to us when he said, go into the world, develop it, build things, create things. This gives us evidence that we've done this. And it points us back to that original meaning that we have. It points us back to the Exodus, though, because when the people of Israel were, were leaving slavery, when Janice and Jambres were, you know, they were proved to be false and Moses um, was proved to be the one speaking God's word when God validated his servant and they were you know, released out of Egypt. Um, they were told to brush blood over their door doorposts and they made bread to eat. And Jesus sat down on the feast that celebrated that day and he broke the bread and he took the wine and he went deeper with it. And he said, this was pointing to even more. It was pointing to even more than just getting out of slavery. It was pointing to the day when I would come and get at the deepest, twisted little notions of your heart and deliver you from your darkest sins. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm in your midst. And we have examples to look at in the, in the story of Jesus. When we come forward to this table, we remember that religious people crucified him, but that whoever would receive him he would give himself to them. He came for the forgiveness of many. So Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. 
This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many, and those words stand on ages and ages of God revealing himself, and therefore they have meaning. So you can come and receive him by faith and walk in the light of his revelation. So next I'm going to uh, pray. There will be two minutes of silence after that. We do three weekly acts of worship. I've explained what's a little bit of the meaning of this table, and this is for anyone who confesses Christ, who says, you know, I, you, don't have to, you don't have to be able to explain it all, but if you say in your heart, I, I believe it, I want to receive it, it's for you. Um, you can come forward and partake of that once Mike starts to lead us in worship. And by worship, we, we actually, probably the right word is just songs that take the revelation of God and embed it down in our souls so that we remember it. Um, during all this, we also have giving. We have a tablet in the back and like a QR code up here. Um, believe us when we say that this is, uh, this is something that we deeply value and we appreciate when you give. Um, I learned something from some ladies from Fenville, Michigan. Um, four, four ladies from Fenville, Michigan taught me this, and I'm just going to do it right now, um, what they, they taught me to do. So we're going to pray before we uh, enter into this, and uh, this has to do with our giving, but pray with me. And then uh, we'll enter into our two minutes of silence. Father, uh, thank you for these people, and I want to pray over them that you would provide everything that they need. I want to pray that you would provide them with the food for their tables that they need, for any money that they need to do what is wise and good in their lives, um, that you would take care of absolutely everything, and that you would give them such an overabundance that they would be able to share it with one another, and that in that you would provide for your church and that you would provide for the telling of your story and your revelation throughout the world. Now may it be so, and lead us as we examine our hearts before you and sit in silence, asking for you to be present with us, Holy Spirit, who gave us the scriptures. In Jesus' name.